All right, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1203 for the week of Monday, July 20th, an important date in space news, 2020. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulloch. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer, a lot of history was made tonight, and I can't wait to talk about that and a few other things, too. Absolutely. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Howdy, everybody. And welcome as well, Kat Robinson. Hello, everyone. All right, so let's jump right into things here. And while July 20th is usually synonymous with the Apollo 11 moon landing, we're going to start off with the red planet Mars. We have three missions that are scheduled to be on their way to the red planet. And the first one began its journey on today's recording date, Sunday, July 19th, 2020, from the Tanegashima Space Center in Japan, carrying the HOPE mission for the United Arab Emirates, which is a first, and there's a lot of a lot more history to this one, Gene. Yes, Sawyer, there is a heck of a lot of history here. Um, the uh, uh, the Emirates Mars mission, or uh, or Hope as as it's called in, in English, uh, is really the first um, Mars mission for the United Arab Emirates. If you recall, a few years back we had the ISRO or the Indian Space Research Organization and their Mars Orbiter mission and their first flight. This is their first mission, interplanetary mission. So this is a huge deal for for uh, the UAE. Um, what uh, the mission really, really is all about, it has really only about three instruments on board. Uh, the mission really is to go ahead and take a look at uh, Mars from a climate standpoint and uh, take a look at, at it in three uh, you know, light, light wavelengths, the infrared, the ultraviolet, and of course, uh, visible light. That's not just the whole gist of this mission. It will probably, the findings of it anyway, will probably go ahead and help uh, us understand the, the climate of Mars going forward. But uh, also this is a big deal too because it was really, really uh, a huge collaboration. I mean, this was really, really a global effort if you look at it. NASA was playing a role in it. Uh, the Japanese were playing a role in it. Uh, it, it was really, really a, a meeting of the minds, if you, if you will. In fact, NASA is going to be just like uh, it supported uh, the, uh, the Indian effort. It will be contributing the uh, uh, Deep Space Network, uh, Communications Network, to go ahead and make sure that the spacecraft continues to, uh, to talk to, to Earth, by the way. It has transmitted uh, its first signals to us, so it is a healthy spacecraft currently. But there are also some soft, you know, what I'm going to say, soft uh, abilities here. It's not just about science for uh, for uh, UAE. It basically builds their, you know, uh, capabilities in interplanetary exploration. Of course, it uh, establishes the UAE as a you know, a, a beacon of progress within the, the Middle East and uh, the Middle Eastern region. And, and Kat, as, as you are, uh, you reminded us all uh, in an episode uh, a few, uh, a couple of years back when we had somebody on, on that was going ahead and, and looking at, uh, you know, the, the sky from, you know, both the, uh, the Middle East and the, uh, the Muslim world, um, that, this region really, really was a scientific hotbed early, early on in humanity's history. 
I just wanted to give a shout out that that was Dr. Danielle Adams with her uh, Two Deserts, One Sky project. Yeah, exactly. And and this, you know, so it kind of calls back to that time. And it, it's, it's really the region getting back to its scientific roots. What they also want to do is demonstrate that the UAE is a, a leader in space research and uh, you know to to uh, to go ahead and inspire the next generation not only of uh, of individuals all over the world but in particular in in the Arab world. So you know children will go ahead and try to go ahead and aspire and say, hey, you know, if if we can put something you know all the way to Mars, you know, what can we do? How can we help? And I think it's going to inspire the, the, the folks going forward. But uh, um, it will take about uh, uh, but it'll take about seven months to reach Mars, just as much as it will take our other probes that we'll talk about in a little bit. And sometime in the February time frame, um, this, uh, this spacecraft will enter a, into a gentle orbit where it's going to go ahead and start what I think is scheduled to be a two-year mission, Sawyer, if I'm not mistaken, of reconnaissance and, and climate research in, in and around the uh, the Mars area. And again, this will play a role, too, in um, building up our knowledge of the Red Planet, its climate, and what our astronauts, once they, they get to Mars... Uh, in in the not too distant future, in the far off future, I'll say about around the 2030, 2035 time frame, and I'm going to go out there on a limb and say that. Um, what are they going to expect? What are they going to have to deal with in that environment? Because you're not going to, it's not going to be like the old Apollo missions as we we celebrate the uh, the landing t tonight of Apollo 11 at 10:56. Uh, PM Eastern Daylight Time when when Neil Armstrong walked out of uh, of Eagle and and planted the first human foot on on the surface of the moon. Yeah, um, it's going to be a lot different. Also, I just like to mention that UAE is is very involved right now in the international space community. In fact, if not for uh, the coronavirus pandemic, we would be. Um, all in UAE, the space community, uh, later this year in October, as they were the hosts for the 2020 International, International Astronautical Congress. So that's been pushed back to uh, 2021. Um, so we'll be having a big space meeting in UAE. And luckily, the timing for that should allow us to get some exciting results from, uh, from their lander. Yeah, and and Ken, if I'm not mistaken, too, they're also uh, getting into the policy area as well. In fact, NASA is kind of you know collaborating with them to try to make better space policy too. At least that's what uh, and I was listening to the the coverage on uh, uh, Dubai One, which was um, I guess broadcasting the uh, the co the coverage from there, and it was it oddly enough it was all in English, and. Uh, um, they, uh, they, uh, the gentleman that was uh, UAE space agency representative there was basically saying that, yeah, that that they're starting to set policy, and you know, we're, they're starting to collaborate with us. Yeah, Gene, it's actually not very unusual in the uh, Middle East, especially if it's an international um, mission or international meeting for them to use uh, to use English. Uh, there's just a great many of dialects um, and languages spoken, um, so as you know, English tends to be a lingua franca, uh, and it's the official language of 
something like the IAF and IAU and other other space policy bodies um, than the UN. So it gets it gets used a lot. Although the UN does use other other languages than English, but um, for instance, the IAF's official language is English, so it's not that unusual. So uh, the Middle East is it's very involved in uh, space and space policy and. Uh, I think it's just that we're now starting to pay better attention to it. Yeah, and the, well, yeah. The other thing too is, I, I believe, uh, and Mark, you can probably correct me on this one, that English is the official language of aviation. But this is really, really exciting. Um, the spacecraft really isn't, you know, a, a, a big thing, but it it does the job. And it, again, the three instruments on board. Um, uh, are, are set and and ready to, to go ahead and, and start taking measurements. Of course, during the cruise phase, they'll probably go through a, a little bit of commissioning of those instruments to make sure they're all working right. And then, you know, then you have uh, the orbital entry on, in uh, next February. So this is something we're going to be watching really, really close. And I'm, I'm very eager to to see these folks succeed. And I'm really, really excited to see a, a new player on the field. I mean, I think it's exciting. We've got multiple players now in the game and, you know, these countries and private entities are all getting money now. So let's see what they can do in terms of exploration. And the other big thing with this mission is they are not only trying to, you know, get this within the two year windows that come around to launch to Mars, but they're also planning on having it arrive in 2021, which will mark a, a very important anniversary for them as well. Um, I'm going to just throw this question out there. Do you, uh, and, and Kat, maybe even you might have any further insight on this one than I do. Do you see these folks uh, participating in the upcoming Artemis program? Possibly. I think that has more to do with um, U.S. policy than it does with Middle East policy, whether it's UAE or any other um, nations. Uh, we have some pretty strict uh, policies with ITAR, uh, in cooperation, which is one of the reasons we don't work as much with China, although there is cooperation with China in space um, that does happen, uh, despite some of the congressional issues. I think that will depend more on U.S. policy than than UAE or any other Mideast nation policy. Yeah, because I see, you know, how Europe has got some experiments uh, that will be attached to Gateway. Um, and the same thing with us, but uh, Europe has has gotten some, uh, or should I say, has uh, has has received some green lights to go ahead and add some uh, experiments to the gateway that will be, uh, you know, untended and will take measurements uh, while gateway is is not being used by. Uh, by human astronauts, and I was just wondering if there's an opportunity for uh, for the UAE to, to put something on there, too. So it's just a thought. No, I mean, I think that there's more opportunity. I think it's just going to be um, who who they work with is going to depend on who opens the doors for them and who makes it easy. And um, right now, that might not be the United States, which I personally think is a shame for the United States. Uh, but, you know, certainly China and Russia are, are very open to international cooperation. And ESA sort of plays well with everyone. So I expect ESA to be involved. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. I agree. Uh, I think ESA is going to be the big partner in this one in the end. But, I mean, regardless, we are 
absolutely wishing them luck on this mission. It's going to be spectacular to watch and to follow. And uh, obviously we'll keep an eye on it and update you as it gets closer to arriving at the red planet and getting into orbit. Jim Bridenstine had, had the following message. Um, on behalf of NASA, I congratulate our friends of the United Arab Emirates on the launch of the Emirates Mars Hope mission. Uh, today marks the culmination of tremendous hard work, focus, and dedication, as well as the beginning of the UAE's journey to Mars with the ultimate goal of human habitation on the Red Planet. This mission is aptly named since it's a symbol of inspiration for the UAE, the region, and the world. And I won't, that's, um, I'm not going to go through the whole statement, but uh, um, he ends it, even during these challenging times, humanity's spirit of exploration and curiosity remain undeterred. We're eager for our own Mars mission perseverance to join hope on its journey to Mars, much like the UAE and the United States of America here on Earth, our two spacecraft will travel to Mars together to benefit the entire world. Congratulations and go hope. So, yeah, the, the, I mean, we're going to be you know, assisting them, but we're also you know, really, really cheering them on. Um, one thing I did leave out here before we, we leave is that um, the United Arab Emirates, they have hopes for, no pun intended, for a human settlement on the planet Mars within 100 years. In fact, uh, from what I understand and from what I remember from the coverage, they are actually going to construct a, you know, a, what they think a false city, you know, a false city would be on the planet, domed and all. And uh, I don't know if this is their version of Biosphere 2 or not, but... Uh, they want to go ahead and try to see what they, if a domed um, facility is possible. So uh, I, I don't know when that, when that particular um, building will be finished, but uh, it's just something that I, I thought was interesting, and in that, uh, and I'm wondering too if they're collaborating with anybody from Biosphere Two, which kind of still exists today. So, as we mentioned, there are three different countries that are working on their way to Mars right now. The next one is China. Now, China is planning to launch their mission on a Long March 5, which is their heavy lift vehicle, which has launched three times as a test, but this will be its first mission with an actual payload on it. It will be their spacecraft going to the Red Planet. The rocket, all we know right now is that it is in place at the Wenchang Space Launch Center in the island province of Hainan. Besides that, Gene, we'll let you have about 30 seconds to talk about everything else that's going on, because that's about all you need, because we don't know much. Uh, actually, we know a lot more than meets the eye. The, the stated objectives for this particular mission are to search for both um, current and past life and try to assess, assess the planet's environment. Uh, it is named Tianwen, uh, and I probably butchered that, um, which means, I believe, heavenly questions or questions to heaven or, or something along those lines. Um, and it was uh, comes from a poem that was written by a, uh, uh, a Chinese poet, Qiu Yang, um, uh, in uh, 
in, in during ancient China. And this is not China's first mission to Mars. They did have a part in the ill-fated Phobos Grunt mission. Uh, they they did have a partner uh, spacecraft uh, on that mission. Unfortunately, um, that uh, Russian mission failed. This was the uh, uh, mission to uh, to Phobos that uh, well did not quite work the way we wanted it to. Um, but this new Chinese spacecraft um, has two parts to it. One is an orbiter. The other one is a lander. Uh, both uh, both um, have about six experiments on board each. And uh, uh, that's really about all we, we know, you know, about the, the, the vehicle itself. Uh, that Long March 5 kind of rolled out by surprise, um, and na the, uh, the uh, Chinese have been kind of tight-lipped on the exact launch date for this particular mission. So uh, this is going to be something that uh, you're just going to have to you know, watch uh, certain social media accounts. Andrew Jones, if you don't follow him on Twitter, please, and uh, if, if you're into the Chinese... Uh, space program that that's a gentleman that you really need to follow um he's he's uh he's quite uh, a good journalist and and quite a good individual uh to uh, to get information on 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 the enigmatic program that is uh, that is china's space program at times um but uh again they they're they're being extraordinarily tight-lipped about uh, about the exact launch date we don't know when that will be we do know that it has to go off by, I believe, Sawyer, August 15th, because I believe that's the close of the window regardless. So anywhere between this broadcast date, July 20th and August 15th, expect a, a launch from, uh, uh, from China on, uh, to Mars. Yeah, uh, again, it's, China has been very quiet, but when they do succeed, they make their achievements very public. So it's something we'll definitely hear about. But just to think, in 2003 was the first time that they launched humans from China into space. And here we are in 2020, and they're now already moving on to Mars. Their space program is advancing really quickly. Yeah, but they haven't... They haven't really launched, uh, and I'm just going to play devil's advocate here, Sawyer, just for a minute. They haven't really launched humans. When was the last time they did launch humans? It was when they had their space station that they were testing that ended up crashing into the ocean. Right, and and you know, so again, I I, I kind of, you know, I, I always hear this thing, oh, China's overtaking us. China's overtaking us. The last time I checked. Um, the United States has been is the only um, nation on on, on the on the uh, face of the planet that has basically done an entire reconnaissance of of the solar system. Um, it, you know, we we've got more eyes on on the heavens than and more more you know space telescopes. We've got more probes out there than pretty much anyone so any nation currently i'm not not trying to be jingoistic i'm i'm basically stating facts so anytime i hear oh china's overtaking us in in uh in in space i'm like well you think about that for a minute and and uh um i i i don't buy that but uh at the same time too i, I think that you know there there's 
there's something to be said of their ambitions and it's i know i wish them well but uh um i i still you know consider us to be uh to be part of that and i'm i'm trying not to get into some of the political differences as far as cooperation um that is up to our 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 politicians to to work out but uh uh do i see a day where um the two nations will cooperate in space i don't know you know a lot of things have to have to change and uh you know from a political standpoint and i i just don't see that that path i just don't see that pathway right now yeah we were certainly much closer to uh us and china cooperation uh 4 years ago than we are now yeah agreed agreed yeah, so, uh, I mean, there are programs still to watch, and we'll, of course, keep an eye on their Mars mission, and even though it is China, we all hope for all space missions to be successful, so we'll hope that they get their first successful shot at the Red Planet. I would also like to mention, if you're uh, a Twitter follower, uh, give Hani Persian a follow on Twitter. Uh, they follow the Japan, China, North Korea aerospace news. Really great information you're going to get a little bit more nuanced coverage than you might get from some of the U.S. outlets. So, ooh, cool! Do you do you, do you have the, the the Twitter handle again? The, the Twitter handle? Yes, it's because oh, I want to do it. Honey person, it's at H A N I P E R S I A N. Um, very good coverage of sort of Asian space exploration there. And I would like to add, since this was originally recorded, China has officially launched its mission. That launch occurred July 23rd at 12.41 a.m. Eastern Time, 4.41 GMT. And then we move on to Mars mission number three, which is, there's a good chance you've heard of this one, especially if you listened to our last episode. This is Mars 2020, better known as Perseverance. The mission, which, <laughs> of course, we posted the episode last time and two hours after it was posted the launch date was moved again so the current launch date we will say as the time of this recording on july 19th 2020 at 9 45 and 54 seconds p.m is currently scheduled for no earlier than july 30th 2020 and at this point we can theoretically get rid of the no earlier than as nasa's continuing to count down and target that july 30th launch date to the red planet and again this is another one where the time is ticking down they've managed to extend their launch window already through august 15th if need be but you're talking florida in the summertime so we're going to keep our fingers crossed on this one. Oh yeah sawyer um i believe the other the other uh, launch dates were due to um some ground issues uh i know one of them was due to a ground support issue i think there might have been a um, something on the uh, on the Atlas V they wanted to go ahead and take a look at and uh, subsequently make sure everything was all all good to go, um, and uh, so ULA has got their their act together. Tori Bruno, I, I guess, uh, tweeted a while back ago that he's he's totally confident they're go for Mars. So um, you know they'll. they'll do this by the numbers. I know Perseverance has been nestled into its, uh, um, you know, nestled into the fairing and is now sitting atop the uh, the Atlas, uh, awaiting its flight to Mars. So, yeah, this is going to be a good one. And what I'm honestly looking forward to, and 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 this is just me because I I have a thing for helicopters. Um, 
I cannot wait to go ahead and essentially have sort of a an Orville and Wilver Wright moment on the surface of Mars uh, with the uh, the Ingenuity helicopter. Again, this is a, a it's strictly a test. Um, we we don't know if it's going to work out or not, but uh, uh, we will be flying a helicopter in, in in an extraordinarily alien environment for the first time, and I'm I'm really looking forward to see how that is. I would like to give a shout out to Sky Crane, which did fly off and crash on Mars. <laughs> <And then, laughs> <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> yay, Sky Crane. <laughs> Looking forward to well, something that's supposed to land back when it flies, not in a crater. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I have I have a, a special place in my heart. Pour one out for Sky Crane. <laughs> oh boy, that just brings back some memories of the uh, the Curiosity parody account and and just some of the 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 comedy that was going on between the rover and Sky Crane going out. So I'm. I am sure somebody out there is going to have a, a Perseverance parody account on Twitter and they will be making the same kind of, you know, gallows humor kind of kind of stuff. So I'm looking forward to somebody picking up the baton and running with that. that that'll be that'll be good. And keep in mind, that was 2012 when those Twitter accounts were going on, when Twitter was still only four or five years into its popularity. Imagine now in 2021 how that's going to be. Yeah, the, the the so yeah the uh, the mission uh, you're referring to with um, curiosity that was more like 2011. <laughs> 2011 well, it, launched, you know. <laughs> it launched in 2011 and landed in 2012, just like this one yeah. launched in 2020 and is scheduled to arrive in February of 2021. It's it's a whole new world just to think in those uh, eight years, eight nine years where we've come, and here we go back to Mars again. And we have TikTok now. Oh, oh no. no. <laughs> you had to mention that. Somebody's going to get some ideas. Admittedly, ULA does have special Mars Perseverance stickers for Instagram, if you so choose to post those to your story. And NASA is doing a social media sort of contest in a way. Uh, what they're asking people to do is they're asking people to record their own launch countdown and be creative with it. You know, the five, four, three, two, one liftoff. Uh, and they may play some of those during their live stream. So if you think you can be creative enough, uh, use the hashtag countdown to Mars and submit your countdown and maybe sneak a talking space logo in there somewhere. Yep. And um, NASA is also launching a virtual tweet up the same way they did with the um, launch America, uh, you know, DM two mission. Um, so, and so if you are a user of Facebook, uh, you're automatically eligible. Uh, there are, you know, uh, they're going to be doing some, uh, some interesting little tours on Facebook and, and behind the scenes stuff and all of that. So, uh, it may be worth, uh, worth giving it some time and effort and, uh, and joining in on that. Um, there are some other uh, really good uh, uh, videos out there too on the uh, on the NASA YouTube channel about the mission. But uh, um, Jezero Crater again is going to be a whole different ball of wax than uh, than Gale Crater was, and it, I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, unveiling its secrets. I mean, hopefully we'll we'll this is really really going to be the search for. This is really going to be the start for the search for evidence 
of uh, former life on 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 Mars, whether microbial or or anything like that. And as um, uh, Jim Bridenstine himself said, we're not talking bunny rabbits here. We're talking uh, uh, we're talking microorganisms and single cell life and so on and so forth. You know, we're not talking about you know big beasts that are roaming you know the the sands of Mars here. So. Um, you, you know whether whether or not that that life did exist in the past or or exists now, uh, Jezero Crater is probably a pretty good candidate for trying to unlock that secret. So I'm hoping that uh, who knows maybe maybe the uh, maybe we'll find something interesting. But uh, that that's another that that's almost like a whole show into it of itself. Um, if you've discovered life, how do you define it? So. Um, Again, I'm I'm really eager for this mission. I'm I'm hoping all the best for it. I mean, this is this is going to be our most sophisticated rover yet. It will and it, it will really really be destined to go ahead and help us further with our knowledge of the red planet, and hopefully help uh, future uh, explorers of Mars uh, learn. You know, so we can learn more about the planet before you know we send our humans along. Wait, you mean to tell me there's not bunny rabbits hopping around on Mars right now? Uh, no. <laughs> of course not, Sawyer. It's Bigfoot. Bigfoot lives on Mars. That's why we can't find him on Earth. Oh, okay. With his cousin, the Yeti. Gotcha. Exactly. Ah, boy. Um, I, by the way, I'd it, just like to point out, uh, there are also, going up on this mission, there will be people, so to speak. Your name may be going to Mars if you signed up for it, which if you did sign up, by the way, you can download a special boarding pass right now. You have the ticket to Mars if you put your name on it. If you print it out now, it says now boarding on it. So uh, you can get that from the NASA website, and you can also sign up to have your name on the next Mars mission. Yep, I'm I'm on board Um and there's a few people I know posthumously they're on, you know, their names are mentioned and um, there might be two lovebirds on that ship, too. I'm not going to say if they are or not, though. <laughs> as long as it's not rabbits, it's because <laughs> there's no rabbits hopping around on Mars. But uh, uh, well, th there may be two. <laughs> I'm not going to say uh, yay or nay <laughs> oh boy again make sure you uh keep up to date with all of those missions following them right here of course you can follow along with nasa on twitter for that on launch day and i'm sure gene cat mark myself some of us will be on social media tweeting about it as the launch goes on oh you can guarantee i will be <laughs> All right, uh, now let's do a quick launch roundup of some of the missions that we have had recently since our last episode. Uh, one of them is a old retired missile that is now launching spacecraft for the National Reconnaissance Office. Gene? That's right, Sawyer. This is the uh, Northrop Grumman Minotaur Four. It was the former Peacekeeper mi missile that, uh, uh, well, we couldn't use it anymore as a, uh, as a, uh, a missile of war. And uh, so we found a spot for it as a uh, mission of peace. Um, we kind of take, took some swords and made plowshares out of them. In this instance, however, um, it's, it's basically the same rocket that launched the Laddie mission, if you folks remember that, um, toward the moon. Um, that was a, uh, a, a lunar dust uh, uh, indicator. Um, the... 
NRL 129 mission, of course, was a, a classified mission, so we really didn't know what what the payload was on board. But it was essentially three, you know, CubeSats for for the NR for the uh, National Reconnaissance Office. Um, that launch went off without without a hitch. The uh, the coverage from Wallops had to cut off at uh, I believe second stage uh, shutdown. Um, but uh, you know, it was unfortunate that it was a cloudy day here in New Jersey, so I, I didn't get to see it. Usually, when they launch off of uh, Pad Zero B over at, at at that particular range, I could go ahead, open up my window, take a look out my window, and 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 see it out through the the garage there. But uh, uh, this particular um, this particular time, uh, no dice. So, um, but again, that was that was a, a it was a you know, chalk up another one for uh, North of Grumman and for the uh, the Minotaur series. Absolutely. Congratulations to them. Again, it's a proven quick little system and good to see Wallops flying again, which uh, may be a delay before their next partner launches from Wallops Island. That was eventually going to be Rocket Lab with their Electron rocket. Uh, they recently launched their mission called Pix or It Didn't Happen. And unfortunately, right as uh, they were getting ready to jettison some of the batteries, all of a sudden on the screen, the trajectory stopped. It didn't really say that it was going up very much. The speed dropped dramatically. And unfortunately, we did lose the vehicle. Yes, yeah, Sawyer, this was in the... I believe that things, from what I understand, the, the scuttlebutt was on that, that um, things were, were going a little bit less than nominal shall we say even before the battery switch over um was supposed to happen on the electron booster um this was going to be a uh a mission to just deploy three small sats for uh optical um Im imaging company canon same folks that probably make some of your cameras um, another company, Spaceflight, and uh, also this was going to have another Dove series for Planet Labs. Um, for those kind of uh, watching the, the live stream, as Sawyer, you and I were, we were you know kind of live tweeting and getting some information out there for folks that were interested. Um, the problem started it looked like it started during that battery switchover and if you know anybody who was taking a look at the the telemetry coming down it looked like the altitude was going and speed were going in the wrong directions all of a sudden it really didn't look pretty at all the cause really is is not known currently although if i know the folks are over at rocket lab uh uh, they'll they'll get they'll get it straightened out. Peter Beck basically apologized to uh, his customer base, um, all three, uh, for um, for losing the payload, and uh, two of the firms, I believe, Planet Labs and and Spaceflight, have already said that uh, they intend to refly their payloads um, on another uh, Electron flight. So um, this particular wrinkle that they ran into and by the way this is their first one um they will you know take a look at it um make sure that uh you know take a look at the tm see what happened 
and see what has to be corrected and go fly again. I really um, admired their response to it. Uh, it's not often that you get a direct apology to their customers in in a vehicle loss. And I have to say that I really, I think that they handled it very well, especially, I mean, we all know how devastating it is to lose a vehicle for any reason, uh, but they really showed an enormous amount of grace with that. And, and I really think that they're going to recover from this with a better understanding and, and move forward um, and continue to, uh, to get customers and to fly for customers. And I think that, you know, that their customers saw that and they saw the, the genuine, you know, care that for their customers that was put first in their reaction. Yeah, and, and Kat, I, I can't agree with you more. I mean, it, it basically showed how, you know, the company's really, really trying to put their, their, their flying, you know, their paying customers first and saying, hey, you know, we messed up, we're going to make it right. And, um, you know, they, they and they responded and had full confidence and was that they're, they're ready to fly again on on a, on another uh, on another vehicle. So I don't know what the implications of this are going to be long term. I do know that they scheduled a launch, um, their first launch out of uh, the company's launch complex two. Uh, at some time, it was supposed to be um, uh, for the end of the summer, um, but I don't 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 quote me on that. Um, it was going to be again their uh, a launch for the U.S. Space Force. Um, uh, just like the Wallops mission, I will say that that was also the first time that uh, NASA Wallops hosted a U.S. Space Force um, mission. But uh, I'm not sure what that does for the, um, I believe, the, the STP-27RM uh, Microsat mission, which is um, the, the, uh, uh, the Space Force mission um they're going to fly uh for um they're going to fly analogs i don't know what that does to that schedule or not i do know this that they'll go ahead they'll analyze what went wrong and electron is going to walk out of this you know a far better booster as a result um again i will also point out too that both uh, uh tori bruno and and elon musk also offered saying hey you know you know, tough break, you know, they had full confidence in Rocket Lab dusting itself off and going to fly again. And I think that also says something about the aerospace community in general. They know what it's like to go ahead and, and lose a payload. And uh, uh, nobody was breaking the corks open over at uh, ULA, um, you know, SpaceX or, or Blue Origin or any of them because uh, they were you're probably looking at, at that and one thinking, oh, there, but go the grace of God, go I. And two is, um, you know, stuff happens and and uh, it, it's just the way the industry works. Exactly. And they, they will recover from this. They pretty much always do all these companies. And, you know, it's happened pretty much to all of them, to most of the major players. And they'll get back to it. And, of course, we're wishing them success as they examine exactly what happened and work on a fix uh in terms of some other launches uh we had two falcon 9s that were scheduled to launch uh one of them was going to be starlink their next batch of satellites along with two ride-alongs that was scrubbed first due to weather then an issue with the rocket and then there was another mission that was going to be launching a south korean military satellite that was also delayed because of some issues with the falcon 9 
that is currently scheduled. Hopefully by the time this is out, that'll be in space, scheduled on July 20th. And then uh, don't forget, we also have people on board the International Space Station, and they are scheduled for another spacewalk this week. That will be the 300th spacewalk coming up. And uh, it's a big one, the last one to deal with the batteries on board the International Space Station. Well, actually, Sawyer, they dealt with the batteries on the International Space Station. Well, the short-circuited battery. Uh, I believe the purpose, the primary purpose of, of th this particular EVA is to prepare their tranquility node for the attachment of a new airlock that NanoRax is going to be sending up uh, later this year. Uh, and they want to get that installed um, onto the, the tranquility node. So uh, that is that that is basically the 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 gist of, of the uh, upcoming uh, spacewalk for uh, both Bob Bank and, and Chris Cassidy. Um, they finished. They they just about finished the um, the battery swap outs on the S six truss uh, this past one. And gosh darn it, if you blinked, you missed it. Um, they made that again look incredibly easy. They took first, they took all of the old uh, nickel hydrogen batteries out. These are the old batteries that came up, you know, for the station. But these new um, lithium ion batteries, they're designed to uh, to pack a lot more, you know, collect a lot more power for you know a lot less, you know, size and so on and. They will also supply a lot more power, too, to the International Space Station. These batteries will extend pretty much uh, the life of the International Space Station, probably through the end of the program. So that was really, really the objective of of, of the other EVA. But they, they, they really, really got all of that done in, in, in short work in about six hours. We made that look incredible. Incredibly easy. Chris Cassidy was the one who basically wrote the procedures on how to do the the battery swap out, and and Bob Bankin has got uh, so much EVA experience under his belt, and these these EVAs just just went ahead and showcased his abilities, and of course they had uh, extensive help from from the ground and training and so on, and um, I think too it. it yeah, it speaks well not only of the astronauts, but the folks standing behind them over at uh, NASA Johnson. They were the one ones really, really that that had the the wherewithal to go ahead and 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 train these guys properly and 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 so on. So, hats off to everybody that stood behind both Chris and 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 Bob on these these uh, these EVAs. They done they've done some incredible work. So yeah, the the next EVA that they have planned is going to be for uh, preparing the tranquility module to uh, to uh, get that uh, that new NanoRax airlock attached to it. So uh, I'm I'm looking forward to that, and probably so is NanoRax. I'd like to get that up as as quickly as possible. I think that's going to be coming up on uh, on a cargo dragon mission. And again, that's one of the new cargo dragons, the ones that have the identical design to uh, to the uh, to the crew dragon. While we're talking about uh, Bob Bankin and Doug Hurley, we should mention, by the way, that we now have a return date temporarily scheduled for them. As of right now, they are scheduled to undock from the International Space Station on August 1st. 
with weather pending a splashdown scheduled for August 2nd. So they'll be coming home soon. As um, Kathy Loiters had pointed out, she's not going to be, uh, she, she will stop biting her nails uh, when uh, when uh, Bob and Doug are on the deck of the recovery ship. Um, and I think that goes for, for everybody involved. Uh, if everything goes well, and right now there's no indications that it won't, uh, it will uh, take about six weeks to go through all of the data and that uh, DM2 collected. They'll probably want to go ahead and analyze that and make sure that everything you know operated within tolerances and uh, find out if they need to tweak anything. Uh, if they do, they'll probably take a few weeks to do that. But uh, uh, as far as Crew-1 is concerned and... Again, this is speculation on my part. I am I'm saying this flat out. I know um, some folks over at uh, uh, SpaceX were hoping for August. I don't see how that's going to happen, given the fact that it will take about six weeks to go through all the data, uh, and then maybe a little bit longer if they have to tweak a few things. Um, my bet is either... I don't know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the the end of September, early October for the next uh, next uh, uh, crew mission or for crew one. Um, and that is going under the pretext that the ISS traffic up there is going to go ahead and and, and permit a, uh, a docking around that time frame. This is actually a nice problem to have uh, when you have too many too many ships visiting your visiting your 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 laboratory. It, it, it's a logistical nightmare, but it's really really kind of a neat problem to have because it means that the that the spacecraft is busy, that the ISS is busy. It's it's receiving cargo, it's receiving logistics, and yes, it's going to be receiving crew um, either through uh, the Russians or through uh, now through uh, through the uh, through the U.S. And of course, while there's commercial crew, another one of NASA's big projects that they've continued to work on is the James Webb Space Telescope. And uh, unfortunately, because of the coronavirus, the launch date of that has now been pushed back. It's now scheduled to launch October 31st, 2021 on an Ariane 5 from French Guiana. Yeah, they made that announcement, uh, I believe it was late last week. Uh, there was a media telecon about it as well, and uh, it was primarily due to COVID. They lost about three months there, um, so they're they're pushing the, the launch date a little bit to the to the right. And according to Gregory Robinson, the uh, project manager, um, this is not going to impact the, the, the budget. They are still going to stay within the $8.8 billion uh, that Congress gave them as far as the cap is concerned. So according to uh, the, uh, the program manager, they're going to still be able to stay within that cap and still get the uh, uh, JWST going. Uh, there's still a lot of testing that still has to be done. The, the good news is that uh, when that decision was made, um, one of the things that uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Thomas Abruken did was reach out to all the partners to make sure that they understood what was going on. And uh, Ariane Space said, no worries, we'll, we'll keep uh, Ariane 5 warm for you. 
I believe they too are having problems with getting Arion 6 off the ground. Um, that was also scheduled for uh, for next year, I believe. That they're, they're trying, they have to push that out. And again, a lot of it's COVID related. But some there's some also some design issues there. Um, so uh, Stefan Azriel has, has, has basically said, "Don't worry, we'll have a booster for you." Um, so there will be an Ariane Five waiting for uh, for the uh, the telescope once it gets there, and I believe too that uh, there was going to be a congressional briefing as to why they were doing it uh, with uh, congressional leaders as well. Again, th this virus has impacted so much. In fact, um, uh, Jim Bridenstine himself was was asked about uh, not just about you know JWST, but the the launch date for SLS Orion. And he said, "If right now we're we're okay, but if we don't get a good handle on COVID nineteen, and we don't get a good handle on what's going on, that you know, that could be in jeopardy too. So, um, COVID's really really messed up a lot of space schedules, but uh, not only but not only just people's lives, but uh, has really really impacted uh, this area here too." Yeah, unfortunately, the virus is obviously having a huge impact on everything right now, including space travel. So uh, we'll wait for that to launch. We've been waiting and we'll keep waiting. And we know it's uh, got some exciting science ahead. I feel like my new vocabulary word for everything is always Corona Willing. This will happen <laughs> yes. at Corona Willing. I love yes, it. Corona I, I, Willing. I'm stealing that cat. Everyone keeps asking, like, hey, when are you defending? Because I was supposed to have already defended my dissertation. And I'm like, August, Corona willing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, when will you get to go to Australia? <laughs> Corona willing uh, yeah. this year. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so, Corona willing, James Webb will get to see space. Yep, and I'm, I, I am definitely stealing that. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> My gift to you all and <laughs> to our Talking Space listeners. Yay! <laughs> well, you also have another great gift for us, and this is one that we talked about last time we recorded, and not everyone on the crew knew about it, and we thought, if you don't know about this story, it's fantastic, of the first African-American astronaut that you might not know much about. Kat? Yeah, so a lot of you have not heard of Ed Dwight. Um, and before I get into this, I just have to give a giant shout out to New York Times reporter Emily Ludoff, who was the person who did a really great story about this a year ago because she found a file on him in, in the New York Times, what they call the morgue, <laughs> where they keep a lot of documents um, that are still physical while they need to um, digitize them. And she actually also did a podcast with their daily where she played some of the interviews she had with Ed Dwight. So that was very helpful for me when I was looking for some more background on this to share with everyone. Um, so let's dive right in. So as you know, most of us are familiar with the story of the Mercury 13, which were the women who passed all the same tests as the men who were selected by NASA to be astronauts in the early days of NASA. But as I said, not many of us are familiar with the story of Ed Dwight. He was an engineer and an Air Force pilot, or I should say he is an engineer and a former Air Force pilot, because though he is in his 80s, he is still alive. He was born in segregated Kansas, and he achieved his boyhood dream of flying aircraft. He was also the first black man selected for the advanced test pilot training that all astronauts were required to undergo at that time. After seeing all the acclaim around the world that the first man in space, 
Yuri Gagarin received, our government, the U.S. government, came up with this idea to put the first non-white man in space to improve the United States' standing with non-white nations, which, as you may be aware, are the majority of the world. President Kennedy approved of this plan, and he passed it on to his vice president, Lyndon Johnson, who coordinated the search for this man. It was difficult. A lot of people said that he couldn't be found because of um, the requirements. It was decided that it had to be a military man and also a test pilot and someone who had a certain amount of hours. Uh, a lot of agencies came back, told uh, that it couldn't happen, that this person didn't exist, and the Air Force said, wait, we have someone. His name is Ed Dwight. And he was the only person who fit the bill. Um, and he was on his way to very big success in, in the Air Force, but uh, he chose to forego that success and a future probably as a general in order to enter the Aerospace Research Pilot School, which was a risky career move at the time. He would spend his weeks, so his Monday through Friday learning, and his weekend was doing press as the first black man selected to eventually go to space. Um, so while his colleagues, all of whom were white, had that advantage of the weekends to study everything that they learned in during the week in classes, he was on a plane doing press tours all over the United States. So he also faced intense pressure and even overt racism from his superiors, but he was championed by the Kennedy administration and graduated the program. He wasn't selected for that next class of astronauts, and that was the class that included um, Armstrong and Aldrin, but he held out hope for the next. And speaking about his experiences as training, um, including flying an F-104 Lockheed Starfighter, he said, the first time you do this, it's like, oh my God, what the hell? Look at this. You can actually see this beautiful blue layer that the Earth is encased in. It's absolutely stunning. Unfortunately, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963 ended Dwight's dream, and he was eventually transferred to another Air Force base and given assignments of less and less importance. It became clear that without the backing he had received from the administration uh, and the people who advocated for him, that he would never become an astronaut, much less the first astronaut, after he was again passed over for the astronaut class selection. That left him to leave the military, resign his commission, and pursuing other opportunities. As I mentioned earlier, Ed Dwight is in his 80s. He is 86 today, and after time at IBM, among other endeavors, he pursued his master in fine arts, and he became a sculptor. Uh, his works of art memorialize the history and struggle of black people in this country, and those monuments can actually be seen all over the nation and also in Canada. Um, so we will drop some links in the show notes so you can learn more about his amazing life. But really encourage you, if you don't know about Ed Dwight, do, you know, even start with Google, wherever, find out more about him. There's some interesting short documentaries. Like I said, this New York Times article is really fascinating. Um, you can go to his own website because he is an artist and a sculptor, and he talks about um, things that he's done there. Uh, and just a really interesting person um, who really just had a crazy inner drive and passion um, as a child to learn and uh, carry that through adulthood. Yeah, I remember hearing his story, uh, seeing it in a documentary somewhere online, and just the inspiration that he brought to kids across the country that anyone could be an astronaut. It didn't matter your background, your finances, and most importantly, the color of your skin, of which finally, you know, NASA eventually launched its first African-American in space uh, in the 1980s, but it, it gave that passion to people. And I mean, he was on the cover of I believe it was Life Magazine at one point. 
for Time Magazine, and it's a shame that he never got to fly, but he's an amazing man, and from the interviews I've seen, he sounds like still an amazing spokesperson for flight and diversity. And gosh darn it, um, the, uh, I, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this correctly, the Amstro Diversity Committee and the Exploration Medi- Medicine Podcast had um, a Zoom call just just tonight at uh, 6 p.m. Central, 7, 7 p.m. Eastern um, with Ed Dwight. And uh, the uh, the hosts of that particular program included NASA astronauts Ed Glover and uh, Mike Hopkins and uh, former NASA administrator and astronaut Charlie Bolden. Uh, I'm going to try to see if I can, if if this was going to go ahead and if, if obviously it's a podcast, I'm going to go ahead and try to see if I can find the link to it and perhaps link it in with this episode too. This gentleman, um, it just, to me, it's criminal that he didn't fly because he, he seemed to be, you know, from your description, Kat, an ultra-talented uh individual just as good as as any of the other you know astronauts out there and uh you know it's a it just seems to me a a horrible waste of of talent um not to 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 include this gentleman and before we finish tonight uh we did lose another icon uh, here in the united states who had a surprising role that I didn't even realize with the space program. And Gene, you have a personal story about this man, so I'll let you take this. Yeah, well, yeah, this is um, a Representative John Lewis who uh, who passed away um, the, this week, uh, the end of this week. Um, he was an absolute legend in uh, civil rights activism. And uh, one of the things that, uh, is not really known, and uh, there's a superb article by Marsha Smith at SpacePolicyOnline.com about the whole situation, but uh, uh, he was the deciding vote on whether or whether or not the space station would come to be. Uh, there was a, a war, literally, in in Congress, um, Representative uh, Tim Romer um, had introduced an amendment um, to the uh, 1994 NASA Authorization Act to basically kill the program. And uh, that amendment went under a vote, and um, it went down 216 to 215. The deciding vote was cast by Mr. Lewis, and uh, the idea too was that over, you know, to, as as reported by uh, uh, Marsha Smith over um, the nine years uh, that uh, uh, President George W. Bush uh, was there, he there was a, a I believe an expenditure of I believe it was about eleven billion dollars on the space station freedom program, and that program went through. Uh, if anybody remembered that, those early days, went through several redesigns until finally, it was you know it, it was almost 
down to the wire. Um, Freedom was essentially reworked into the International Space Station by uh, President uh, uh, Bill Clinton. Um, He invited other nation states on board the International Space Station, uh, Europe, and including um, Russia. And at that time, too, uh, Russia was basically trying to reform itself. It had uh, uh, the the Soviet Union had fallen uh, a few years earlier, and uh, uh, Russia was trying to go ahead and and keep its uh, keep its place on on the world stage. Not only was it trying to do that, but it was also uh, a way of keeping these Russian high technologists employed and going and so on because we did not want these individuals to go ahead and fall into the wrong hands and, and you know, wreak havoc and using their technology with, with you know, bad actors on, on the world stage at that time. And um, uh, apparently uh, John, uh, John Lewis saw the wisdom in that and cast the deciding vote for the International Space Station. So it, it's one. It's just a, an aside story um, in this man's illustrious career. Uh, and uh, again, we lost a, a, a true statesman and a true giant uh, this week. And, and I just want to go ahead and point out the fact that, uh, yes, he will be remembered for his civil rights contributions, but... He made a grand contribution to space as well. And I think that one of the reasons that it's so poignant is that he believed that America pursuing space was related to his his civil rights work. Um, he thought that it was part of what made an, made America a great nation. Um, and he thought that pursuing that dream, to quote him, Uh, After saying that vote, he said, you know, um, we become great by dreaming and pursuing that dream. As soon as we lose the ability to dream and reach for the stars, we cease to be great. Representative Lewis held our nation to to account and held it um, to the standard of its highest and most lofty ideals. And I think um, that's something that we can all admire and all disagree that um, of course, he would have supported this because he believed he believed in an America that could be great, and he uh, believed in an America that lived up to its ideals. And so, you know, we've certainly lost a giant, uh, but we'll continue to make that good trouble and that necessary trouble. And Jim Bridenstine uh, had the following words here too: uh, "We mourn the passing of an American icon and civil rights leader, Representative John Lewis." who committed his life to uniting humanity on and off this planet. His leadership and the support of the International Space Station helped develop a worldwide coalition in space. His legacy of supporting international cooperation will carry on through the Artemis program, which will include the broadest coalition in the history of space exploration. Close quote. So high-sounding words indeed. It's it's a sad loss, but uh, again, we're thankful for his contributions. And on that note, I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Was a fun evening, Sawyer. Thanks so much for uh, for uh, 
doing the honors and uh, and keeping all the cats in line. Looking forward to the next time. Thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. See you next time. And thank you as well for joining us, Kat Robinson. Always a pleasure. And thank you, of course, for listening and joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are, wear a mask, and wash your hands. Mm-hmm.